We're going to begin our time this morning in 2 Samuel chapter 5, even though I read from 2 Samuel 6. We're going to back it up just a little bit to 2 Samuel chapter 5. I don't know if you've ever had to sell anything in your life. I have had a few jobs on occasion where I've had to sell things. I've discovered I'm terrible at it. I'm really good at telling people why they shouldn't buy something. But if you're wondering, well, how do you sell something? Here's a couple of things to think about if you have to sell something. is If you have an item that you have to sell, first of all, the person has to understand how this item or service will benefit them. Generally, when you're selling or buying something, you want to know what the benefits are. If you're going to buy a new car, you want to know the fuel economy, the power. Does it have the features that you're interested in or that you need? So you, you would list the benefits that uh, a person would encounter if buying uh, a particular item. You also have to explain uh, what the cost is. Generally, if something is free, you're not selling something. You're, it's called giving a gift. And so you have to explain, here's the cost for this item. And finally, you might have to emphasize the value. You say, well, yeah, the cost on this vehicle is very high. It's, a, it's an expensive car, but the value is even more so. What you're getting for this price is unbelievable. And so we sometimes think about buying things in terms of benefits and what they cost, what our perceived value is. You know how many different kind of coffee makers you can buy? So many, you know, uh, you've got, and, and coffee makers change over time. You have the uh, my favorite kind of coffee maker, which is the percolator on a campfire, where you have to chew the coffee. Uh, it gets kind of gritty and crunchy, and then you have the drip coffee maker, and I always think people who bring drip coffee makers camping, or uh, they don't understand what camping's all about. And the whole idea is the coffee's supposed to be awful. That's the whole point. But then in our homes, many of us have these Keurig. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it. Keurig? Keurig? Yeah. And so, what's the worst thing about a Keurig? waiting for the water to heat up. Can you believe this is like a thing now? You've got to wait a minute for the water to heat up early in the morning if yours doesn't have a timer on it. And so we're always thinking, oh, what's the benefit of this curve? Well, it makes uh, really small amounts of coffee at an extremely high cost, but... <laughs> you're not saving money by buying those giant crates of Keurig K-Cups at Costco either, let me tell you. But the convenience of just being able to make one cup, it's a, it's a value. We convince ourselves there's a value. Listen, I've got one. We've got one in the office. I'm not judging you for your Keurig. But what I want you to understand is we look at the people of Israel today. Uh, they were approaching the, the very presence of God in much the same way we might approach a product we're going to buy. They were going to understand God uh, for the benefits He provides. There was a certain cost to having a relationship with God in terms of obedience to the Mosaic law. Uh, and, but there was a value to it, and, and they were imagining their relationship with God in, in very much the same way we might uh, think about uh, buying a coffee maker or a car. What are the benefits? And I'm going to give you three benefits that Israel perceived in the, having the presence of God in their midst, and then we're going to go through these, uh, through these two chapters and explain how they sort of missed the boat. What are the, the benefits Israel received from having the presence of God? Number one, they got victory. The presence of God provided the people of Israel victory over their enemies. The presence of God for the people of Israel provided power. Power to stay in the land, power to uh, have fruitful agriculture, power to have peace. And finally, the presence of God provided great reward. Longevity, prosperity, political peace, 
personal prosperity, uh, national prosperity. So there were these benefits that Israel experienced from having the presence of God in their midst. Victory, power, reward. We're going to go through each of these things uh, in in a way as we work our way through chapters 5 and 6, and I want to explain how they missed the boat a little bit, and frankly, how oftentimes we miss the boat in understanding God and His benefits. So, 2 Samuel chapter 5, all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron, that's where David was living and ruling the tribe of Judah, and they said, we're your flesh and blood. In the past, Saul was king, but when, even when Saul was king, David, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. Uh, The Lord has said this to you, and here's the quote they gave to David. You will shepherd my people, Israel, and you will become their ruler. So all of Israel came to David, and they said, listen, God is with you. He is giving you victory. So we want you to shepherd us. Before, when Saul was king, you really were the victorious one. So David, why don't you become king? And so the elders and all of Israel came to King David, and they anointed him king before the Lord and said, come and shepherd us. Become our king. So David was 30 years old, and he became king over all of Israel. All of Israel asked him to become king. You'll remember that Saul has died, and there has been a civil war waging for seven years. And now David has been anointed king over all of Israel. So David has it in his mind that he's going to conquer Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem at the time was inhabited by a group of people. This is verse 6 of 2 Samuel 5, a group of people called the Jebusites. The Jebusites had been in Jerusalem, and no one up until King David had been able to get the Jebusites out of Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem's right in the middle of Israel's territory, but nobody could beat them. Nobody could get them out of Jerusalem. So David goes to Jerusalem, and he's going to conquer the Jebusites, and the Jebusites taunt him. He said, listen, David, if our city was inhabited by nothing but blind men, and lame men. They could keep you out of the city. That's how strong this city is. If the, the entire population of Jerusalem, uh, which was a much smaller city than it is today, maybe 12 acres at this point, uh, if the, the city was so strong in its walls and its security, he said, if the, if the city was filled with nothing but blind men and men who couldn't walk, they could ward out your precious little army, David. And David said this, anyone who conquers the Jebusites is going to have to get in there through the water shaft. And and so Joab, his general, or soon to be appointed his general, he takes a group of men and they scurry up the water shaft of Jerusalem. Now, I don't even know what that would be like, but I'm certain it wasn't fun. Anybody like enclosed spaces? How about enclosed spaces that generally fill with water? Joab was a man, man's man. He always has been, tough as nails. And he invades the city through the water shaft, uh, and they conquer the city and uproot and uh, get rid of the Jebusites in that city. And David took up residence in Jerusalem, having uh, had victory over the Jebusites, and set up his own city, his own, he called it the city of David, he he was going to build his palace there. That's where his reign was going to go from, was from the city of Jerusalem, no longer in Hebron. And in fact, another king, a local king, sent him all kinds of wood and stone to build a beautiful palace. One victory down. The presence of God brings what? Victory. David brought victory to the people of Israel because they were supposed to root out all of the 
uh, Canaanites and Jebusites and Hittites and Girgashites in the, in the land. And so David knew the Jebusites weren't supposed to be there. God would give victory, and sure enough, God did. So David had great victory. Hey, this is what they wanted, right? This is exactly what they wanted. Look with me at verse 17, 2 Samuel 5. Philistines heard that David had been anointed king of Israel, so they got the whole army together, and they moved down to the valley of Rephaim. Rephaim. Verse 19, this is very important to notice. Look what David did. David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go and attack the Philistines? Will you deliver them into my hands? This is critically important as a stand of David. The Philistines come to invade, they come to kidnap him, to kill him, to wipe him out. And the first thing he does is go before the Lord and say, God, do you want me to go and battle the Philistines? And we know this from David's history, we covered this several weeks ago. When David asks whether God wants him to do something, he's being serious. If God would have said no, David would have stayed home. Do you want me to go attack the Philistines? And the Lord answered, go, I will deliver the Philistines in your hands. So David went down and wiped the Philistines out. Uh, I think the, the Hebrew word is kicked their heinies. In fact, David said this, as waters break out, like a dam bursting, as waters break out, the Lord has broken out against my enemies before me. Remember that uh, Oroville Dam as we watched the floodwaters pouring out of that and everybody wondered if all of Northern California would end up underwater? That's a bad thing, Oregonians, come on. <laughs> come on, guys. That's why he says, as waters break out, that's what I, I mean, how unstoppable are those waters when they're rushing out? Now, the Philistines couldn't stop it. Though, as waters break out, the Lord has broken out against my enemies. So the place he called it Baal, Perazim. And, and the Philistines abandoned their idols there. Their idols had to be carried there. Their gods and trinkets had to be carried into the battle. David's God shows up and breaks out. And when the Philistines abandon their idols, their idols don't walk home on their own. Weak and useless. Victory number two. Verse 22, victory number three. Once more, the Philistines came up and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. David inquired of the Lord, and the Lord said this, This time, don't go straight up, but circle around behind them and attack them in front of the poplar trees. As soon as you hear the, the sound of footsteps, of marching in the tops of the poplar trees, then go quickly and, and invade. Because the Lord will go out in front of you and strike the Philistine army. Now, this is a terribly risky move from a strategic standpoint. To go around behind the Philistine army would expose then their cities to the Philistines, so they're leaving themselves exposed on one front and sneaking around behind. And God says, I don't even want you to go until you hear me marching out ahead of you. When you hear my army marching out ahead of you, then you can follow me in. Trying to clean up the mess when I'm done is essentially what God is saying. So David did as the Lord commanded him, and he, and he struck down the Philistines from Gibeon to Gezer. David had three victories as the new king of Israel. I want you to understand something about this victories that he has had. Who was the focus of the victories David is having? 
If you read through this, this chapter is not about David. It's not about the Philistines. It's not even about Israel. It's about God who is victorious. Over and over and over again, God is showing up and demonstrating His victorious ways that no one can stop Him. His enemies are weak and useless, in fact, powerless. The Philistines were no, no stronger than their useless idols, and God is victorious. But we have to understand something about the people of Israel when they appointed David king. Look back with me at 2 Samuel 5.1. David, you will shepherd the people of Israel. You will become our ruler. Where do they want David to shepherd them? To peace and prosperity. David, take us to the green grass. Take us where there's no enemies. Take us where there's no uh, problems. Take us where there's plenty of food and plenty of peace, where our enemies are, are not even close, where, where we don't have to worry about anything. Where does David want to shepherd them to? We have to understand a little bit about David. What is true of David? God has made testimony about David. What is true of David? He is a man after God's own heart. What is the primary job of the king in Israel? To give his people peace? No. Give his people prosperity? No. To shepherd his people to God himself. See, the people of Israel, even though in some ways they're seeing, uh, wanting to see God's will done, they want to see God's will done because it's very pragmatic. Because in this case, if God's will is done and David is king, they will experience military victory and national prosperity. They're not really seeking the Lord here. It's just in this particular case, the Lord is rather convenient. Because if God gets his way, so do we. But you'll notice all the way through his victories here, David is not having victory so that the people of Israel may be at peace David is having victory because that's what God feels like doing that moment. He has victory in Jerusalem because that was God's plan, was to get rid of the uh, Jebusites. He has victory over the Philistines because God says, yes, go and have victory. The people wanted David's uh, rulership to be very similar to Saul's. Saul spent most of his time ruling, scurrying about trying to figure out what the people of Israel wanted that day. Remember when he attacked the Amalekites and left the king alive and he allowed the men to retain all of the best of the spoil? Because, well, I want to be a good shepherd. I want to give him peace. I want to give him prosperity. That's not the job of the king. The job of the king is to lead the people of Israel to the Lord, to shepherd the people to the Lord. It repeats over and over again. Look with me at verse 10 of chapter 5 again. David became more and more powerful because the Lord God Almighty was with him. Not because he curried political favors with those in power. Not because he was able to lead the people in military victory. Not because he had good alliances with the king of Tyre. None of these things led to his power. What led to his power? The Lord God Almighty was with him. It repeats again down in verse 20. The waters break out. The Lord has broken out against my enemies. Was David victorious because the army was well-trained and well-equipped? No. 
kindergarten class could have had victory when the Lord breaks out. The presence of David's military at that point is secondary to the real victory, which was the Lord's, and David understood this. Last reminder again down in verse 24. As soon as you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the poplar trees, move quickly because that will mean the Lord has gone out in front of you to strike the Philistine army. And why didn't David say what all of us might say? You know, God, I really appreciate the help, but I don't know if you've noticed, I'm kind of a stud. I got 600 guys with me. We pretty much win everything we do. So appreciate the gesture. Why don't you take a little break? No, because David understood his victory was in the Lord only. Despite his skill, despite his resource, despite his strategy, despite all of his experience, David said, yes, Lord, I won't go till I hear you. So David's standing in the trees. Could you imagine with his entire uh, city exposed to the enemy with no defense, and he's standing there waiting. Okay, uh, God, any time. I don't know if you've ever waited on the Lord for anything. He's not in a hurry, is he? David waits, and the army of the Lord proceeds, and then David proceeds, and they strike the Philistines. The important thing to understand here is the people of Israel sought the, the benefits of God only because he brought victory. God was convenient in that he brought about what they might desire. Their heart's desire was not primarily here in this chapter to be, to be closer to this one who would give victory. They merely wanted the, the victory itself. Maybe I can say it this way as we think about our own lives. Oftentimes we want to figure out how we can in our life leverage God to provide the victory we want. And I don't know what that is you're looking for. Maybe you're much like the people of Israel. You're looking for personal peace and prosperity. And if there's something, some lever I can pull to get God to pour out the personal peace and the personal prosperity, then, then go ahead, God. What do I need to do? Is it, is it spiritual disciplines? Is it not saying any naughty words? Is it uh, being really nice to the jerk at work? Please don't make it that, God. And we think, what do I got to do to, to get God to give me what I'm looking for? And that's exactly uh, what the people of Israel are doing. What do, we got, what do we need to do to get God to give us his victory and his prosperity? You want us to make David king? Fine, whatever. David, though, is not seeking the personal safety and prosperity of the people of Israel. David is seeking the Lord himself. David had this crazy notion, which is counterintuitive, and you may even think it's a little bit kooky. That victory is found in merely being in the presence of God. Man, this had better be true. I mean, straight up, this is, no messing around. This had better be true. The presence of God has to define what victory is. Otherwise, I don't know what to do with all the Christian martyrs. I I mean, you've got to get your head around the the reality of this. If God's presence isn't the victory, then we have significant problems with how God does his thing. And this is what David is saying. God, uh, your presence is the victory. Uh, Having you is the purpose. If God, your presence happens to lead to a victory that I enjoy, hey, that's cool. But God, if your presence leads to defeat and destruction, that's your business. But victory is not found on the battlefield. It's found in the presence of the Lord. 
David doesn't seek victory itself. He seeks the Lord because being in God's presence is, in fact, the win. In, in fact, seeking God's purpose is victory for David. Now, certainly, he wasn't perfect. He's going to get this wrong many, many times in his life. But here in this chapter, this is precisely what we're seeing. Why else would the general of the Lord's uh, people say, God, do you want me to attack the Philistines? I mean, any king who, who has half a brain in his head, was the Philistines were invading. What do we do? We kill them, right? If somebody said, well, we ought to have a prayer meeting and seek the Lord's guidance. You know what Joab was saying? David, you're an idiot. I mean, you know Joab. He is not a spiritual giant. He's saying, David, what are you doing? Of course we're supposed to conquer the Philistines. But David was operating on a completely different frequency. He doesn't seek the Lord merely to obtain victory. He seeks the Lord because he knows the presence of God is victory. One of the benefits of being in God's presence is victory. Secondly, look with me at chapter 6. We read this portion. We're going to talk about the presence of God First we mentioned the presence of God is victory. Now we say the presence of God is powerful. So David has conquered the Jebusites. He's uh, setting up his capital in Jerusalem, and he decides he wants the Ark of the Covenant to be uh, in the city of David. He was going to set up a, a place of worship there. He's going to pitch a tent there for the Ark to be uh, there so their worship could be done in Jerusalem, and that was a good thing uh, to do. If you're not familiar with the Ark of the Covenant, it was a a box, essentially a box that was completely covered in gold and had a lid that would go on it. On top of the lid were two cherubim uh, were facing each other whose wings were touching in the middle. And, and the top of that lid is what we would often call the bema seat or the mercy seat. And so when the tabernacle was with the people of Israel in the wilderness, do you remember that? That is where the presence of God would settle on top of uh, the Ark of the Covenant. So the Ark of the Covenant is a symbol of God's presence, and oftentimes it was the place of God's manifested presence. And so David uh, imagines, and this is the right thing to do, is, is I want to have God uh, near me. I want to have God's presence near me. So we're going to move the Ark of the Covenant from its home at Abinadab's house. Why was he going to move it? Because Abinadab is hard to pronounce. He got tired of saying it. That's not why. It had been at Abinadab's home for probably 100 years or so. I mean, it's been there a long time. It's not like it was there for a couple of weeks. So you notice, they decide to move uh, the Ark of the Covenant. You see right away there's a problem. They set the Ark of God on a new cart. Ooh, a new cart. Really, David? Wow, how nice of you. The oxen stumble. Uzzah, a priest reaches out to study the Ark of the Covenant on my lens. Could you imagine if it fell off and hit the ground? And I mean, what if the thing fell off and one of the wings of the cherubim broke off? I mean, if you were Uzzah, wouldn't you do the same thing? He reaches out and steadies it. He's dead. God kills him. And you and me and every person who has read this passage since it was written goes, God, simmer down. Why in the world do you freak out about him? I mean, what if the thing would have fallen off? And we need to understand, it's critically important we understand this. 
Look with me at verse 8. After Uzzah dies, David is angry. And you say, well, was angry, David angry with God? Was David angry with Uzzah? Was David angry with the oxen? Uh, yes. It's vague because when you've had this stuff on, happen in your life, you get angry and you say, who are you mad at? Huh, I don't know. Police officer drives by, I'm going to be mad at him. I'm going to yell at whoever is conveniently close. I'm going to be angry at them. So David is angry because, how is this worded? Look, the Lord's wrath had what? Broken out against Uzzah. Do you remember us talking about that earlier? All of a sudden, the Lord's wrath is not breaking out against the Philistines. It's breaking out against a Levite, a priest in the people of Israel. There's all kinds of problems with what's going on here. When the Ark of the Covenant was to be moved, it wasn't to be put on an ark or on a cart. It was to be carried on two poles uh, between the, the priests, and not just any priests. Priests of, the, of a specific clan had to carry it. If anybody else carried it, they would die. And if they had read uh, the Mosaic Law Code, they would have known this was the case. He sought the presence of God. David sought the presence of God because the presence of, of God is, is powerful, but the problem is that they presumed upon the presence of God. They presumed that the ark was nothing more than a piece of furniture. I mean, if there would have been a moving truck, they would have chucked it in the back of it and drove it. They presumed that they just had to merely move this piece of furniture and this good luck talisman, wherever it might go, will exude the presence of and fortunes and, and may I even say the good luck of God. I mean, at this point, are the, are the people of Israel treating the Ark of the Covenant any different than how the Philistines treated their idols? If we've got this wooden thing with gold on it, God's luck will show up. We'll buy a lottery ticket and we'll win. They presumed upon the presence of God. Say, God, if, if we just take your box where it should be, we're going to experience your blessing. They presumed that the presence of God was primarily for their blessing. Say, we like God. God is powerful. We like His stuff. We like it when He blesses stuff. So let's move His furniture to a place where His blessing will be poured out on us. They make all kinds of presumptions. The primary one being that God's presence is primarily intended to bring His blessing, His blessing to them. Look with me at chapter 6, verse 24. No, not chapter. There's 23 verses in chapter 26. No, keep looking. You'll find it. I meant to say Psalm 24. I'm going to read Psalm 24. That's what I meant to read. Psalm 24, of David, a psalm. I'm going to read the whole thing. It's not terribly long. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. They will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God their Savior. Such is the generation of those who seek 
Him who seek your face, God of Jacob. Verse 7, lift up your heads, you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord Almighty. He is the King of glory. The people of God presumed the presence of God was primarily intended for their blessing. Psalm 24 reminds us, no, no, no. The reason for your existence is my blessing. What does Psalm 24 one say? He has made how much of the world? All of it. It all belongs to Him. And Uzzah and David and the Levites and the priests, they presumed that the ark of God, a big shiny gold box, was designed to bring God's presence for their blessing. And God says, you take breath, moment by moment, for my blessing. Your existence is uh, predisposed toward you blessing me, your existence bringing me glory. When we presume that God's existence is merely for our blessing, first of all, we reduce Him to no larger than a Philistine idol, a good luck talisman that's intended to bring us the things we want as though we have the intelligence to determine what's best for us. When we presume a God, upon God's presence and take for granted His presence and His power, in fact, we shift our gaze of worship from the God of glory described in Psalm 24 and instead shift our gaze of glory to our own hearts and we examine our own hearts and determine based on the pleasures and desires of, own heart, of our hearts what God must look like. This is what Uzzah and David and Israel did. We know what we want, and we think we have a, make, a means to, to press God to conform to our purposes, and God said, uh, no, I'm not a part of that. Don't invite me to that party, because it's going to be dangerous. God was not overreacting when he struck down Uzzah. He was underreacting. He should have wiped out the whole train. The dancers, I mean, they're up there dancing, and they're having a worship service that was off the hook. They had cymbals. We're not going there. Simmer down. I'm just dropping that, let you think about it. I mean, after that worship service, everybody went home, and what did they say? Man, that was, that was great. What a blessing. And what did God go home and say? What a rebellious and stiff-necked people. They're lucky I didn't wipe them out. But by my grace and mercy, I'm going to just do the one guy. We take for granted God's presence. We shift our gaze from Him and His glory onto ourselves, and we seek to conform this God to the shape of our heart. And when that idol comes popping out, it looks precisely like those Philistine idols that were made. And they're useless, they're powerless, and they can do nothing for us except affix our gaze on them to our loss. I hate to break it to you. Your purpose is His glory. I, I'm being facetious. I don't really hate to break it to you. 
Your purpose is His glory. As the Westminster Shorter Catechism says, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. The means by which we enjoy God is through His glory and through His purpose. His glory is our reward. That's frustrating, isn't it? His glory is our reward. I only say that because we want to be God so bad. Well, God, how is it? Maybe, maybe, God, just a little wheeling and dealing here. How about you get glory, and then because of that, I get some other things. And God says, no, because there's nothing better than me receiving glory. The problem is, is we don't have a taste for it. Israel didn't have a taste for it. They were, they were hauling an idol to Jerusalem. It was the Ark of the Covenant. Can you believe that? They had taken something so holy and so right and had turned it into a good luck talisman. And God said, no way, man. He didn't say it just like that, but in a similar way. The presence of God, we want Him in our life for victory. We have to understand the victory is attained by having the presence of God. The presence of God, we want Him in our life for His power. And we must not be mistaken when we presume upon the presence of God and take Him for granted. We shift our gaze from Him onto ourselves and we miss the power of God. The power of God is, in fact, His presence. All right, last section. Look with me at verse 16. The power of God, the presence of God is reward. They decided to try again. About six months later, later the house of Obed-Edom was being blessed by the presence of God in his home, mostly because Obed-Edom understood that the blessing was the presence of God, not a good luck talisman. And David decided once again, you know, we really ought to have the presence of God among his people in the city of David. So they decide to move the ark from Obed-Edom's home uh, to Jerusalem, but they decide to do it correctly this time. What the Bible tells us is this. They got the ark, and this time, they, what they do? They carried it on the shoulders of priests the appropriate way. And as they were carrying the Ark of the Covenant, they would take six steps, and then they would sacrifice a bull and a fattened calf. And then as the Ark was progressing, David was dancing in front of the Ark with the rest of Israel in a linen garment as well as an ephod. So this time, they were following the Mosaic law in how they transport the Ark of the Covenant. A gigantic worship party. Now, a strange one at that, probably something we wouldn't be familiar with. The Ark of the Covenant was not being worshipped. They were worshipping God whose presence was made known at the Ark of the Covenant. They were slaughtering numerous animals. It's hard to know if they were slaughtering them every six steps or just after the first six steps. I think it was every six steps. I think he had it lined out. Wouldn't have necessarily had to take that long. They would have had timing, you know, have all the animals laid out on the course, and as they're walking by, bye-bye cow, all the way. David was dancing in priestly garb, the, the, the linen garment, the ephod, to indicate he was worshiping God as a representative of the people of God. 
This shifts their focus through sacrifice and through worship and through the priestly representatives say, listen, our focus on moving the Ark of the Covenant is not on our own blessing, but rather the focus of the Ark of the Covenant is our worship of this powerful God. How do you access the presence of this powerful God? Through blood sacrifice, because we have sinned. What kind of worship is he owed? Pure and white and holy worship as the linen garment of David would attest. How are we to worship him? As God prescribes, carrying the ark, not hauling it on a moving cart. The point here is for the people of Israel not to experience blessing, but the point here now in this new movement of the ark is that God might be blessed. Psalm 132 might be a song that they would have sung or something similar to it. This is a song of a sense, a song that for many, many years after would be sung or um, quoted as people made their way to the temple or to the tabernacle. And I'm going to read. It's not terribly long. I'm going to read it. Uh, Psalm 132, a song of a sense. Lord, remember David in all his self-denial. He swore an oath to the Lord. He made a vow to the mighty one of Jacob. I will not enter my house or go to my bed. I will allow no sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids till I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling for the mighty one of Jacob. We heard it in Ephrathah. We came upon it in the fields of Jar. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool, saying, Arise, Lord, and come to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. May your priests be clothed with your righteousness. May your faithful people sing for joy. See, this is a worship uh, song that's intended to illuminate and bless and encourage and strengthen God alone. The entire thing is focused for God and His enjoyment and His pleasure and His blessing. For the sake of your servant David, do not reject your anointed one. The Lord swore an oath to David, a sure oath he will not revoke. One of your descendants I will place on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and the statues I teach, statutes I teach them, then their sons will sit on your throne forever and ever. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling, saying, This is my resting place forever and ever. Here I will sit enthroned, for I have desired it. I will bless her with abundant provisions. Her poor I will satisfy with food. I will clothe her priests with salvation, and her faithful people will ever sing for joy. Last two verses, I will make a horn grow for David and set up a lamp for my anointed one. I will clothe his enemies with shame, but his head will be adorned with a radiant crown. Again, and a song of ascents is intended to draw the, the singer to God and, and draw the, the attention of the worshiper to God, that God might be blessed, that God might be lifted up and uh, experience the joy of his people worshiping him. God's blessing is experienced when we have His presence with His people via 
or through sacrifice accompanied by triumphant praise. God's blessing experienced uh, in the presence of God with His people through sacrifice accompanied by triumphant praise. And how does David's wife respond? She wasn't even there. She's looking at her window, the Bible says. She saw David worshiping, dancing, sacrificing, singing, giving out gifts. And this was her, her response. So what's on Netflix? Very dignified, David. Very, very dignified. Boy, you really played the fool, didn't you? That's what she said to him. When David returned home to bless his household, Michael, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, Oh, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today. Going around half naked in full view of the slave girls. Nice. Very kingly. I don't know if you know, uh, honey, um, my dad was king, and I know how this is supposed to roll out, and that wasn't it. Notice she didn't bring up the two days that King Saul spent naked prophesying, you know, convenient memory. But here's what Michael's argument is. Listen, I know what rulership of the people of God looks like. It's dignified. That's a polite way of saying it's elitist. Our job is to figure out what the people want and give them just enough to make sure we maintain power and make sure the focus stays on us. All of Saul's rule was on making people happy, that he might be made happy. How do I keep people happy with me so I can stay on the throne? David's rulership being established here early on, he doesn't really care. Look, read with me what he says to her. David said this, It was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the, Lord, the Lord's people, Israel. Uh, that's not very nice, David. Where's your dad, Michael? I'm, I'm sorry. How'd his rule end up? Uh, God chose me over Saul. Saul was rejected. So maybe you think you know a thing or two about how to lead a kingdom, but apparently Saul doesn't because God rejected him and he has chosen me. So let me explain to you how I rule and this is why God has chosen me because this is what he has done in me. I will become even more undignified than this. I will be humiliated in my own eyes, not just the eyes of my servants. Do you think I care what people think? David's rule is a rule of anointedness, meaning God has set me here to shepherd his people, to know him, and I will do so to my humiliation. Even to the degree where I myself will say I am humiliated. Michael, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. That isn't necessarily a miracle, that's biology. David and Michael's relationship was permanently fractured. Michael might suggest to us something like this. You know what, listen, God's great. 
It's his people. But we do need to maintain in the presence of God a certain dignity afforded to our role, afforded to who we are. The whole idea of worshiping God is that we therefore uh, experience his blessing and experience uh, uh, his presence with other people, but the primary uh, reason is, is an expression of who we are in the presence of God. And, and David is making this argument that the presence of God, the primary blessing of the presence of God is, is God himself. And if, if Uzzah erred by presuming and being cavalier towards the presence of God, Michael regarded the presence of God lightly. Whereas Uzzah might have been cavalier with the Ark of the Covenant, Michael was worse yet. She was indifferent. God is here. Great. What's for dinner? God is here. All right, well, I think I can work him in this afternoon. God is not a reward for Michael. God is, God is dull. She has more exciting things going on than God. David's argument is this. There is nothing better going on in my whole life than God. There is nothing going on in my life that surpasses the presence of God and the glory of God. The presence of God is victorious. Because victory is God Himself. The presence of God is powerful because our purpose is His glory. And the presence of God itself is our reward. I just want to look at a couple of verses in the New Testament real quick by way of closing. Colossians chapter 2. This whole chapter, these whole two chapters really significantly point forward to the son of David, which is Jesus. And I want to just highlight a couple of those things, although there's a number we're not going to be able to touch on. Let me read Colossians 2, 13 through 15. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh... God made you alive with Christ. When you were dead, God made you alive. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of legal indebtedness which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. The presence of God in Jesus is victorious over our sin, over our death, over evil, and even over Satan. He disarmed the powers and authorities. He's referring to Satan and his authority and his power in this world. He disarmed them and made a public spectacle of them at the cross. The presence of God for us is victorious in Jesus over sin, over death, over evil, and over Satan. We have to ask ourselves, like the people of Israel, are we looking for Jesus to show up in our life so that we can get some side benefits? Or are we looking for Jesus to show up in our life because he gave us this victory? 
And the answer is, because He gave us this victory, the presence of God in Christ is victory. There isn't another victory to be attained. The presence of God is powerful, Hebrews 10. Turn with me to Hebrews 10. If you can't find it, it's toward the end of your Bible. Hebrews 10, beginning in verse 19. The presence of God is powerful. I'm going to read 19 to 25. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have this confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, we are Uzzah. We get to enter the most holy place. How do we enter the most holy place? By the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain. Remember, in the temple, there was a curtain that kept the people out, and only a priest could go in there. And he's saying, the curtain is opened. In fact, that curtain is his body, his, his broken body and his shed blood. It's through his sacrifice. And since we have this great priest over the house of God, verse 22, let us draw near to God with sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we can spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in, in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day approaching. How powerful is Christ that He made the way for us to walk into the presence of God? This is why I think they were killing oxen every six steps. Because that way is, the way to the presence of God is covered with the blood of Christ. I don't mean to be gross. All the way that ark was moving and animals are dying and you're saying, how awesome was the sacrifice of Christ? It's done. The whole way is covered. It's taken care of. We walk into His presence through the broken body of Christ and through His shed blood. And so Jesus is powerful for us that we can walk into the presence of God. What else could we possibly want from Him at this point? Well, there's lots of things we might want from Him, isn't there? You know that morning prayer when you get ready to go to work, if you ever owned a car? older than, say, 10 years? Oh, Lord Jesus, please start. <laughs> you know, you've been in that place. And you say, listen, I'll decide whether or not your car starts, but can you believe this? I paved the way for you to walk into the presence of God. We can draw near to God in Jesus anytime we want because he paved the way. There is no other more powerful thing that he could possibly do for us. The problem is not that he hasn't been powerful for us. The problem is we take lightly how powerful he has been. The presence of God is victory. The presence of God is power. And finally, the presence of God is reward. Look with me at Revelation 7. Now everybody wakes up. We're going to talk about prophecy. John says this, after this I looked, this is verse 9 of Revelation 7, after this I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne, before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes. What was David wearing? A linen robe. They were holding palm branches in their hands and they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. 
all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. The presence of God is our reward. Do these people sound unhappy? Do these people sound bored? Is anyone irritated that the people next to them aren't saying it in the right language? Notice your Bible, it's in English, but how many tribes were they from? Every tribe, every nation, every what? Look with me. Tribe, people, and language. They're singing a song. Salvation belongs to our God. And they're t- Listen, it's not in Swahili, buddy. We're doing English. Look at the PowerPoint. There's no PowerPoint in heaven. Lord, have mercy. The reward is the presence of God. I've, met, I've admitted this, and I know you have in your own heart and mind. Sometimes you worry a little bit about heaven because you're like, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? So we have to admit that when we wonder if heaven is going to be dull, we have no idea what God is like. Now, this is not what heaven is going to be, a worship service for a, for a billion years, although there will be plenty of that. But let me put it this way. If we were in the presence of God and God said, you have to stand here for a billion years, we would go, yes, because that's how awesome he is. We have no clue. The presence of God himself is the reward. We want the presence of God and some other stuff. We want the presence of God as long as it comes with other things we're interested in. And that's where the people of Israel found themselves, and David was fighting against it. The presence of God itself is victory. The presence of God itself is power. And the presence of God itself is our reward. If we did nothing for the balance of our Christian life other than seek a closer presence of God, we would do just fine. The problem is, seeking the presence of God causes us to leave the presence of our own personal preferences and desires and agendas. The presence of God means we have to make silly prayers like, God, do you want me to defeat the Philistines? The presence of God means yielding my own desires and the shape of my own heart and saying, God, I'm done with me, I want you. The problems with seeking with the presence of God for us as fallen individuals is we're not God and we really want to be. I know you're pretending like you don't want to be. You'll get it someday. You really want to be God. Close with this. I've said that already, right? Now you don't believe me. God did not send his son Jesus to die to merely make reasonable and level-headed adjustments to our already decent life. God did not send his son Jesus to die to merely make reasonable and level-headed adjustments to our already pretty decent life. I've said it this way, and I'll keep saying it because it helps me. God did not send Jesus to be the dressing on a boring salad. Lord, my life is kind of dull. Jesus will be my ranch dressing, or whatever your favorite is. And God says, 
We're getting rid of the salad. We're doing something wholly different. Jesus is the whole meal. If you want to experience the victory of God and the power of God and the reward of God, you have got to at some point do what Christ called us to do in faith. Say, I will die to myself because in him I have been crucified and in him I find life. Dying to self is not easy. But God is worth it.